Welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Guramurthy. And I am Grant Gordon. Displaced is the podcast to listen to if you're interested in the global refugee crisis. We dive into the causes of it and what you can do to try to address some of the main consequences. This is a fun collaboration between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and the Vox Media Podcast Network. And today on the podcast, we're talking with Chris Elias at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So Grant, you invited Chris Elias on the show. Just tell us a bit about him and why, why him? I was particularly excited to invite him on because the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is such a huge and impactful player in global health and global poverty. They spend about $4 billion a year on improving health outcomes, increasing education, and reducing poverty. And that's an amount of money that is pretty unparalleled globally as a spend by any single institution um, and often many poorer countries. And so understanding how they make their decisions, how they think about investments was something I was really excited to, to better understand. Yeah, I'd like to understand how they make their decisions because they've been so laser focused and evidence and, and rational that it'd be quite un- good to understand how they go about the process. I also think uh, Chris is somebody who's a real leader in health, isn't he? Yeah, so he has been the CEO of PATH um, and has overseen the development of affordable meningitis vaccines and a number of other products. So he is uh, kind of a stalwart in the health field and um, has thought particularly a lot about the role of technology um, in reducing global poverty, which is a complicated story. And I'm, I'm excited to actually hear some of his reflections on them. Okay, let's talk to Chris Elias. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Chris, we wanted to start with one of the great success stories over the last uh, 20 to 30 years, which is since 1990, the number of children around the world who die before their fifth birthday has fallen by more than a half. And a big part of that dramatic improvement has been down to the expansion of routine immunisation programmes against an array of infectious diseases like polio, measles and tetanus. And if you think about the journey, you've been heavily involved in that. Um, and this starts, I think, probably back in the 1970s with the, the World Health Organization beginning a, a program of global routine immunization for diphtheria, uh, whooping cough, tetanus, measles, etc., and TB in 1974. And then in 2000, the WHO, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where you now work, the World Bank and other organizations founded the uh, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, which aggregates donor funding for grants and technical support. And if you think about the impact that that's had, it's been pretty astonishing. Back in 1974, immunisation coverage was less than 5%. By 2010, that coverage was 80%. And we've had incredible breakthroughs like smallpox being eradicated, deaths from measles declining by about 75% from 1990 to 2010. And now polio literally being on the verge of being eradicated, just 22 cases recorded last year. I'm interested in your perception of that journey, because you've been hugely involved in that progress. And what surprised you most about that success over the years? And what are the lessons that you've taken away? So uh, thanks, Ravi. And, you know, there's uh, the, the journey of success for immunization is truly one of the most historic things in global health. You know, as you described back in the 70s, there was uh, a recognition that came together about the importance and the opportunity of reducing child mortality through uh, avoiding vaccine-preventable diseases. The, the, the world got organized um, in, really in the 80s for the first time, and it was really the remarkable leadership of Jim Grant, who was the executive director of UNICEF, and made this one of his priority signature programs for the the decade of the 80s. And UNICEF, together with WHO and many others, um, helped to drive immunization coverage up from, you know, 20% or lower to uh, 80% or roughly, you know, by the end of that decade. And, And that was an incredible achievement. And it began the journey to reducing under five child mortality. And so that's been, uh, you know, a remarkable journey. In 2000, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, or GAVI, was formed. And since its inception 18 years ago, the estimate is that uh, the the work of GAVI has uh, prevented 9 million child deaths through the introduction of 
new vaccines, as well as the improvement in immunization coverage. And one of the things, just to add to you know, your description of the success, it's not just that we're reaching a higher proportion of children with basic immunizations. It's that we've seen incredible innovation in the last 20 years. A lot of new vaccines that have been put into that basic routine immunization program and have saved incredible numbers of lives. And so you come out with a tremendous number of lives saved, but you also come, come out with countries achieving great social and economic benefits. You know, all in all, immunization's a great buy, and we've been happy for the last 18 years to be part of the Gavi Alliance in helping to drive getting the benefits of immunization to all the children in the world who need it. And we've made great progress, but we still have some ways to go. I mean, you mentioned there some of the new breakthroughs that are being made. And I'd love you to talk more a bit about cholera, because if you think about some of the contexts in which the IRC works, like Yemen, deaths from preventable diseases remain a huge problem given poor water and sanitation. And right now, I think in Yemen, um, we're seeing the biggest cholera outbreak ever recorded. In the last month, the WHO announced a new cholera vaccination campaign aiming to reach 350,000 people initially on the way to reaching 4 million. And, and some of the breakthroughs that are coming forward, I think, are going to uh, tackle some of the constraints of doing uh, effective programming in places like like Yemen, where there may not be cold storage. Because I think mm-hmm. there are uh, vaccines on the way where you may not need to, to store it at, at a low temperature. So can you just say a bit more about what you're most excited about in terms of those new vaccine breakthroughs? Well, so there's lots to be excited about, right? So there's... Um Uh, You know, we're excited about new vaccines for very, you know, uh, vexing problems where we don't currently have um, the tools to prevent uh, those diseases. So there's vaccines in the pipeline for malaria and other diseases where we don't currently have a vaccine uh, that's, that's highly effective. And then there's innovations that bring make it easier to deliver vaccines that we have. You mentioned the, the issue of temperature sensitivity. Consider the challenge of taking a vaccine from the factory where it's produced in the United States or Europe or India or Indonesia and taking that vaccine in what we call the cold chain. That is keeping that vaccine in a narrow temperature range between 3 and 7 degrees centigrade as it makes its journey across the world into places like Yemen, where you were talking about IRC's work. That's really, you know, it's a a journey fraught with multiple opportunities for the cold chain to be disrupted and for heat to destroy or to to make weaker the, the, the effectiveness of that vaccine. And so if we can develop vaccines that are heat stable, or that are at least stable to the extremes of temperature and, and don't have to be, you know, that, for instance, could be transported at room temperature as opposed to um, in, a, in a, you know, a very cold, uh, cold chain. Um, that would make it easier to do the incredibly difficult things, right? So if you um, think about the statistic you started with, that we're currently reaching about 80% of the world the world's children with the basic routine immunization. That's an incredible achievement, but it also, the flip side of that is that we're not reaching 20% of the world's children. That's one out of five. And, you know, as, as Anthony Lake, the previous executive director of UNICEF used to say, you know, we have to reach that fifth child. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's important, but it's also true that that fifth child isn't standing next to the other four. If he were, he or she were, it'd be easier. But that fifth child is in a war zone, um, is a displaced person in a, in, a, in a vulnerable area where they may not even be counted. Uh, they're in an urban slum. They're in difficult places to reach. And the more difficult it is to reach that final 20% of children, the more we need innovations that make it easier to deliver the vaccine, easier to transport them, easier to deliver them, schedules that require less doses than more, um, uh, ability to combine vaccines so that when we reach children, we get them the full benefits of immunization. So there's a pipeline of technological innovations that the Gates Foundation and others are investing in that are all aimed at making the job easier to deliver these life-saving vaccines, as well as to develop vaccines that we don't currently have that could help make a big difference in the common causes of child mortality. I want to pull on the thread of uh, the cholera vaccine example because Mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting case for innovation. 
you have a set of vaccines that you need to keep um, in cold storage, you know, in that sm- meaning you need to keep them in that small, narrow band of temperature to make sure that they can arrive to a medical facility and the person who's receiving it at that same temperature to, to, to make sure it's still effective. And if you look at that, you know, last mile of health or the last 20 percent or places like Yemen, and then you think about the fact that you have vaccines that need to you keep you need to keep it cold storage you could place your bets on any different type of innovation. You could place your bets on trying to, uh, you know, um, make cold storage unnecessary so that, you know, you're able to more easily get it through the supply chain. Alternatively, you could work on improving the actual supply chain management to Mm -hmm. get it to kind of the places like Yemen. And so when you're at Gates and thinking about how to invest in different types of innovations to solve these problems, how do you think about which strategic investment you're making? And in particular, that the choice between new product developments versus the delivery system. Yeah. So there's. let me take that in two parts. First, Ravi's question about how do we decide which technological innovations to invest in. And I think like any good investor, we think about a portfolio of investments. We don't generally put all our eggs in one basket. Um, You certainly need to, um, you know, because you may be constrained by science, right? Um, You know, there are a lot Mm -hmm. of great things you'd like to do that are difficult to do because the science is hard and the technology's uh, not, you know, affordable or scalable, et cetera. So we have been investing in um, more thermostable vaccines, um, and for some stable, some uh, vaccines that uh, will work uh, better than and for others. We've also been investing in better cold chain equipment. Um, so, you know, an interesting example is that the Ebola vaccine that's being deployed today in response to the most recent Ebola outbreak in uh, Bandaka in the in the Democratic, and that's in the Democratic Republic, in the Democratic of, Congo. Republic yeah. of the Congo. Is requires a very uh, strict cold chain. It's it's actually a sub-zero cold chain, and they're using some new uh, cold chain innovations. Um, basically, um, you know, uh, thermos-like uh, innovations that hold cold temperature very uh, very well to help manage getting a vaccine that requires a sub-zero cold chain out into some of the most remote parts of of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, uh, you know, Banaka's in a, in a remote area of the DRC, and uh, the logistics are very, very challenging. And so, uh, you know, when we think about it, we, we think about, okay, how can we make the, th- the vaccines more thermostable? We also think about how can we get cold chain equipment that's, um, you know, protected against uh, a surge in electricity or could work off the grid with, with solar electricity that can hold temperature uh, better that can, you know, help manage the vaccine supply. And then there's also the management innovations about how do you design the cold chain? How many depots do you have? You know, historically, you know, often the distribution system recapitulated the administrative system and every province would have its own cold storage and then every district, et cetera. Well, that's not how, if you think about how uh, the private sector manages their cold chains and logistics. They don't necessarily follow an administrative structure. They figure out, okay, how many places do we need to hold vaccine? Can we reduce that? Can we reduce the transit time? Because uh, if, you, if you actually study where vaccines get damaged in transit, it's usually in transit or at, at certain levels of holding uh, uh, storage. So if you can minimize those vulnerability points, and use modern-day technology and visibility analytics to, to drive an efficient cold, cold chain, then you can optimize the management of the system even with the existing technology. So, you know, back to your question, Ravi, we, we think about um, investing in innovation both in better vaccines, better equipment, but also better systems for managing the logistics and cold chain of, uh, re- regarded to immunization. If I switch to Grant's question about, um, if I understood it correctly, how do we think about um, upstream technology investments versus uh, broader investments in uh, the systems to drive immunization coverage and to reduce the inequities in that coverage? Um, You know, again, that's been a bit of a journey for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you go back to where we started uh, 18 years ago, 
Um, you know, initially we were very focused in our investments on new tools and technologies, uh, thinking that, you know, recognizing that, that the markets fail in, in terms of incenting companies on their own to produce technological innovation for the poor. So where we could step in with philanthropic capital and, and partnerships between public and private sector organizations, we could spark, and, and we did this, I think, quite successfully, again, with many other partners. Public-private partnerships, a bit of philanthropic leadership and capital have helped to create some of the innovations that we've seen in terms of vaccines and other technologies for um, diseases of the poor. And it, initially, I think we assume that if we did that, that markets, system, health systems, and governments would pick up those innovations and use them. And one of the things I think we've learned is that that doesn't happen automatically, that you have to go beyond um, just creating new technologies, and you have to think about the systems into which those technologies will have to be delivered in order for uh, you to have the impact that you want to have in improving uh, children's uh, uh, livelihood and, and reducing their mortality. And so, you know, about 10 years ago, we, we really had an important discussion about how, in some ways, we were facing the possibility of a, what I used to call the innovation pileup, right, that we had a strong pipeline of new technological innovation for people living in very poor countries. But they were, that technological innovation was then facing health systems that were ill-prepared to adopt it or to scale it, given they're generally underfinanced, they're understaffed, uh, the staff that are there are often inadequately trained, they're not good management systems, the information uh, uh, technology and, and, and management information isn't in place to drive efficiencies in, in the system. And so in the last decade or so, we've been investing in a more balanced portfolio, if you will, still driving tremendous innovation in, in new technology. We think that's a, a unique role for philanthropy um, to, to take risks that it's hard for others to take in terms of uh, betting on research and development for uh, the needs of the poorest but also complementing that with increased investments in health systems, particularly in primary health care systems, because most of the problems that children's face, if children face, could be prevented or simply treated at the first level of health care. And so strengthening those primary health care systems is an important new focus, relatively new focus, of our work at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, so just to... Uh make that a little more concrete and actually pull out an example that you were talking about around supply chain, which I think is fascinating, is the fact that uh, most supply chain that's run by government primary healthcare systems reflects administrative lines rather than what may be most efficient and driven by the private sector. Does this mean that you're then working with governments to essentially break down the administrative organization of supply chain. Is that is that what that translates into? Is the necessary innovation that you're pushing? Yeah, I mean, what it what it I would say that it, the purpose isn't to break it down. The purpose is to understand it so that the government can make the most cost effective decisions about how to organize it. Now, in many cases, that'll mean. Um, you know, moving away from what was the default. I mean, one of the, if I can backtrack for a second, one of the, I think, uh, you know, developments in global health that has driven progress, not just in immunization, but across the board, has been a greater understanding of the need for public-private partnership. You know, historically, the private sector did its thing in places where it had incentives uh, to, to pursue profit, and the government did its thing without any cross-fertilization, particularly in poor countries, um, or learning from the private sector. So absent that, you know, having an, a distribution system that follows your administrative system is kind of a, makes sense. It's a kind of a default. But when you start looking at the analytics and understanding how many vaccines do you have to move, what's the demand, what's the, where are the places in the chain where the vaccines are vulnerable to mismanagement or lapses of electricity, et cetera. So uh, I would say it's the default, you know, our going in assumption isn't necessarily this has to be broken down, but rather this has to be understood 
that we have to provide the analytics and the visibility to the people who manage the program, who manage the supply chain, who manage the precious stock of vaccines. They need to have visibility and understand where the system's breaking down and then take rational decisions about how to fix that. In many cases, that'll mean having a distribution system that's not identically mapped to the the political administration of a country. But the key thing is it's about bringing in the understanding, bringing in the best practices from the private sector on how to manage a complex and increasingly just-in-time supply chain. And that's where public-private partnerships, and Gavi has quite a few um, uh, partnerships in many other countries and um, uh, have partnerships with civil society and private sector organizations who are bringing that cutting-edge thinking about visibility analytics from the, the private sector into the design and functioning and management of these public sector programs. Can you take us through an example of a public-private partnership that you feel is particularly interesting and relevant? And perhaps particularly say what market failure um, it's trying to address. So one of the partnerships I had the opportunity to be very engaged with over the last 15 years was the meningitis vaccine project. Um, You know, I think, as you know, before I joined the Gates Foundation six and a half years ago, I worked for an organization called PATH, uh, the Program for Appropriate Technology and Health, as the CEO. And PATH had a project that started back in 2001 that was supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and was a partnership between PATH and the World Health Organization and, uh, in the end, a myriad number of other partners uh, from the public and private sector to solve a solvable problem, and that was to develop an effective vaccine for meningitis in West Africa. So this is an interesting example because there are in the Sahelian region of, of Sub-Saharan Africa, there have been, a, a, for over a century, um, a, a well-documented pattern of seasonal epidemics of acute meningitis, which um, is a scary disease. It kills about 10% of people who get it. It neurologically impairs another 10 or 15% through deafness and, and other consequences. Um, And importantly, it disrupts the health system. The health system is so busy chasing the meningitis epidemic that the primary health care delivery of other services stops. So in this case, back in 2001, following a very large epidemic in West Africa in the latter part of the 1990s, the countries of Africa through the World Health Assembly appealed for a vaccine for meningitis. And one of the reasons they appealed is that they knew that the science existed The science to conjugate uh, a meningitis vaccine had been developed and was being used to produce uh, expensive vaccines for other strains of meningitis that are, you know, common in Europe and the United States. But no company had an incentive to make that vaccine because, after all, it was a vaccine that was needed in, you know, 20 or so of the poorest countries in Africa. It wasn't a vaccine that had a market in the United States or Europe, et cetera. And so... With a $70 million grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the WHO and PATH formed a partnership, worked with a number of of, uh, vaccine companies, did a complex technology transfer, managed the intellectual property, and over the course of nine years from 2001 to 2010, developed a highly effective, safe, and low-cost meningitis A vaccine for West Africa. Uh, that when it was launched in 2010 was uh, uh, available at a price of 40 cents a dose. And the most common cause of epidemic, seasonal epidemic meningitis, meningitis A, is now not causing epidemics. There are still epidemics of other, smaller epidemics of other meningitis strains. And in fact, the second generation vaccine that we're investing in with others hopefully will be more comprehensive and get all those strains. But the major cause of of epidemic meningitis, which caused 80 to 90% of the epidemics, is now gone because of a vaccine that's been introduced through Gavi, but that was developed through a very innovative public-private partnership that the World Health Organization and PATH pursued with, again, many other partners with support of, of the Gates Foundation. That's the kind of role that we think philanthropic capital can play. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart 
a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash displaced. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. And then with their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it is no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash displaced. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-S-P-L-A-C-E-D. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So it feels a little bit churlish to uh, put to you one of the critiques of uh, vaccination, which I've read. Uh, actually, you've raised it in one of the four toughest questions that you've mm-hmm. uh, identified that you get typically, which is take something like polio and the eradication of polio where we're uh, nearly at the point where that's that's true. Some people have said, is it actually worth it? Mm. And I think the critique is along the lines of people get attracted by the uh, goal of eradicating a disease. It can be very sexy to do that much more so than the the grind of building basic healthcare systems, which I think you talked about earlier, could solve 90% of most of the reasons why uh, children under five die. So I'm just interested in your view about how do you make those trade-offs mm-hmm. between, say, uh, let's uh, eradicate this disease versus let's build the basic healthcare systems? What kind of analysis do you use to try and uh, make judgments on those investments? Sure. So the first thing is to avoid seeing that as an either-or choice because, in fact, um, you know, investing in strong routine immunization systems makes the eradication of any vaccine-preventable disease easier. So, um, but it is, but it is a bit of a, but there is a, there is a, uh, there are scarce resources, presumably, so you have to make some uh, choice about prioritization. Yeah. So let's let's go back in time. Imagine uh, to 1988 when the World Health Organization made you know the the World Health Assembly, the the governing body of the World Health Organization, made the resolution to eradicate polio. At that time, as you said at the very top of the hour, uh, immunization rates were probably less than 50 percent, and we had a tool, a very inexpensive tool in the in the oral polio vaccine that could be used uh, in campaigns to greatly reduce and then ultimately eradicate polio transmission. And one of the reasons I think, I wasn't at that World Health Assembly, but I think one of the reasons that the assembly made the goal to eradicate polio is that in 1988, there were 350,000 children in the world in over 120 countries who were being paralyzed by polio. And we had a simple effective and inexpensive tool. So I think the decision was not to let's eradicate polio and forget about routine immunization. Let's do we had to do both. We had to embark on using the tool we had to get rid of a disease we knew we could. And in fact by 2000 um, uh, polio transmission had been stopped just 12 years later in over 100 countries. And we've been struggling for the last 15 years or so in getting the final cases of polio, eradicated in the final places. Um, and, and that's been in some particularly tough places in northeastern Nigeria and in southern Afghanistan and western Pakistan, uh, where conflict and inaccessibility and instability have, have created you know, challenges to the final uh, stages of eradication. But think about what's happened in the 30 years since uh, that WHA resolution. Um, you know, there's, it's estimated that 7 million children are walking today who otherwise would have been paralyzed, that the economic burdens on their families and communities, et cetera, have been uh, relieved greatly. So there's no question that toward the end, when there's only 22 cases of polio in 2017, as you pointed out, and where the budget of the polio eradication effort last year was about a billion dollars, um, you know, the amount of money spent per case in 2017 was was pretty high. 
Um, but there's also the economic projections that once you eradicate disease, as, we, as we've done only once before with smallpox, you actually eliminate the threat to, uh, to humanity from that disease indefinitely. So, you know, there are various economic projections that show that when we succeed in polio eradication, you know, we can anticipate a, a significant um, savings to uh, both in terms of, of uh, benefit to human life and, and relieving the strain on health systems between now and 2050. That's a pretty good return on investment. So there is a trade-off. So, but what I want to come back to, I guess, is one of the things we've learned, particularly in the last 10, 15 years of the polio eradication effort, is to not see these as competing efforts, to use the polio eradication program as a way to build the immunization, the routine immunization system. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's an element to eradication and of, of uh, diseases or anything else that of the kind of cost, uh, cost of it that as you get closer to eradicating, it's likely that the cost is increasingly going to go up uh, for the very reason that the last cases are often in the hardest places to access. And so I think that I think that there's an interesting trend where once you're starting eradication efforts, that there's more public support for it because the cost per case is lower than when you're getting to the end and you see, you know, the fact that we're spending a billion dollars on this a year, but you're at that last mile. So does it really make sense? Um, I, I used to work at the Department of Peacekeeping Operations for the UN in demining, and we had very similar conversations about taking out landmines. There were there was an aspiration that we would universally take out all mines out of the ground, and as we got closer to that, in many areas, you were in areas where you know people weren't necessarily going to walk over them because they weren't populated or they're really really hard to access. So the cost per unit began to increase, and you start to get this this pushback. Um, and so I think it's it's important thing to keep in mind, particularly on the long arc of these efforts when when you uh, commit to them. But it also gets at one of the kind of key things that you're talking about in terms of what are the types of places that you're seeing where these costs are going up. And these are the very hard places. And you want to be pushing forward building primary healthcare systems as well as um, as well as actually engaging in the direct eradication efforts. And in places where you've got state capacity to build on, I think this makes sense, but there's a set of countries or cases out there. And, you know, the IRC works in the sand. These are on the front lines of humanitarian efforts where there really is no state capacity. And so here I'm thinking about, you know, South Sudan oftentimes really doesn't exist outside the capital of Juba in terms of administrative capacity. Central African Republic is very similar. And so in those very extreme cases, the cases that are at the end of this cost arc, are you circumventing the state at this point because there is nothing to build? Hmm. Um, I don't, you know, if you're, uh, it's a little bit of a contradiction to your statement. If there is no state, there's nothing to circumvent, right? I mean, I think, you know, in these, some of these very fragile and failed states, um, you know, I think if you can work with what, what state elements are there, um, we should do it. But you're right that in some of these really, um, you know, uh, failed states, there's not much of a system there. And you really are in much more of a humanitarian assistance uh, mode where you're having to provide a lot of that support directly. You know, even in those places, you have to work with the communities, um, you know, the community leadership, the political leadership, even if it's not highly organized in what we would normally think of as a state. There's almost always, I can't think of an instance when there isn't, a, a community structure in place that provides legitimacy that ultimately guards and decides on access for humanitarian actors, including for immunization and polio eradication and other life-saving health interventions. So I can't think of a place in the world where you can just kind of walk in and provide a vaccine. Um, most places, there's an organized government program, but when there's not, there's probably one or more in many places, community groups that have to be involved, have to be negotiated with to provide um, safe humanitarian action and to reach people who are often in some of the, the most difficult environments on the planet. Great. Thanks, Chris. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few moments. Okay. Where we're going to dig into the question about the emergency response work that Gates are doing and your big priorities there. Welcome back. Uh, we're here with Chris Elias from the Gates Foundation. One of the things that the Gates Foundation has been increasingly engaged in is emergency response and We'd love to hear how the Gates is engaging in those spaces and what type of programs you're funding. 
Sure. So, um, you know, our emergency response program is actually a relatively modest-sized program for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's not the area where we spend most of our philanthropic um, effort. And there, a reason for that is that many times emergencies capture the the news media in a way that mobilizes and galvanizes uh, uh, response from the global community. Um, and so we, when we think about what's the role of the Gates Foundation in emergency response, we think about, okay, where's our unique advantage? Where could we add value? Um, because we don't actually have the kind of resources that governments will often be able to uh, uh, or the UN system can provide in the face of a large-scale humanitarian disaster, et cetera. And where we've landed and where we've been working for the last 15 years or so is that we can provide fast and flexible funding. We work with a core set of, of a dozen or so humanitarian partners, IRC is one of them, where we can move very quickly. So, um, you know, we, we're often in the position when there's a, an acute crisis, uh, whether that's an infectious disease outbreak like Zika or Ebola or whether that's a, a natural disaster or a tsunami or a flood, um, where we work with our close humanitarian partners to provide funding very quickly so that they can begin mobilizing, begin moving. And while they organize the larger scale resource mobilizations, uh, mobilization efforts that will bring the, the resources for a sustainable humanitarian response. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say that our emergency response program is, uh, not surprisingly, the, the one where we can move uh, funding uh, as quickly, uh, uh, quicker than we can in any other program to our key trusted humanitarian assistance partners. And often those, that funding is relatively modest, but it's flexible and it's quick so that they can get moving. And then while the slower processes of, of you know, government appropriations and, uh, and that come in to provide a much larger uh, support to the assistance going forward. So that's kind of how we think which, about it. Oh, which is just to, just to kind of put in context is so crucial for anybody who's a bit unfamiliar with the way crisis response is funded, mm. because usually there's a rapid onset, which is kind of the space that we're talking about and it's identified and we, you know, humanitarians need to deploy in, but it can take up to months for government actors or large institutions to then kind of set up the facilities and funds to direct, uh, to direct money towards those areas. And so bridging that gap is really crucially important. I think of one of the examples that illustrated this was the Ebola crisis in West Africa, mm -hmm. in which, you know, from the moment it was identified to the moment the first kind of large contract was signed, it was multiple months. And the estimates are that the cost of response as well as the lives lost, you know, uh, just went up exponentially in that time. There was another set of factors that, you know, impeded response there. But that funding window is, is crucially important to um, fix. Yeah, maybe just to, to build on that about our experience in the West African Ebola response, um, you know, we, we actually um, put some additional resources into responding to that. And in the end, we spent about, we, we made about $75 million in grants for that crisis. About 25 a million of that was for acute response, and the other half was actually more um, related to research and development on some of the new tools that are um, now actually being deployed in, in the current Ebola outbreak. But what, what happened there is that we made uh, grants literally within days to some of our key humanitarian partners, which actually helped them get moving, helped them get staff out into the field, et cetera. You know, I, I haven't seen the tally on what the ultimate cost of the response, the humanitarian response was in West Africa, but I know it's north of $2 billion. So in that setting, you know, $25 million from the Gates Foundation helped to move things along. And, and when you look at the emergency response work that's done uh, by humanitarian organizations, where do you think the biggest weaknesses are and the biggest areas where innovation can perhaps play a role in, in addressing? So, you know, innovation is, you know, in some ways, if I think about, step back and think about the Gates Foundation's um, programs overall and what's the role of a catalytic philanthropy, it's often in fueling in, in innovation, as we talked about earlier in, in new tools and technologies and bringing, you know, best practices to management of, of systems that need strengthening, et cetera. And that's true in emergency response as well. But it's important to think about 
you know, there's another perspective to think about emergency settings. One is that they're some of the most difficult and austere environments that uh, global development works in. And so what we've been doing increasingly over the last five years or so is looking to some of our bigger programs where we're making you know, significant investments in new approaches and new, inno new innovation, and how can we bring them to the emergency response? I think one of the best examples is our work in sanitation. So you know, we have a fairly large program in water and sanitation uh, where we're doing some very cutting-edge things. One, one of the big initiatives there is that what we call the Reinvent the Toilet initiative, where we're trying to um, understand how you could have a better toilet, right? So two and a half billion people in the world do not have access to safe sanitation. And the current solution that we're all familiar with, where you flush a gallon of water every time the toilet is used, is neither scalable nor sustainable, particularly in places where water resources are scarce, where sewers don't exist, et cetera. So we've been mm -hmm. investing a lot through our water and sanitation program with a wide range of public and academic and private sector partners in understanding how could we get new engineering and new technology so that we could look at non-sewer non network solutions? So a, a toilet that could safely dispose of and treat sanitation, human waste, uh, prevent it from getting into the environment and causing diarrheal disease, and uh, et cetera. How could we develop more modular toilets that uh, don't require being on the grid of running water and sewerage? And so we're, you know, that's a, that's a pretty high risk, you know, kind of out there initiative, but we're making some interesting progress and we've got quite a few uh, prototypes that are in early testing, et cetera. So that work's been going on independent of our emergency response program. And in the last few years, we've been saying, okay, what, are there some solutions there that might apply in emergency response settings, given that uh, almost by definition, when a group of refugees gathers in a field, there's no sewer there, right? They're, not, they're coming across mm -hmm. borders, fleeing conflict, internally displaced from uh, you know, internal strife in places like South Sudan that you mentioned. And so they're often in very vulnerable environments, vulnerable people in vulnerable environments with no infrastructure. So could you bring some of these prototype toilet solutions to those settings? And so now we're partnering are, if you will, larger investments in sanitation innovation with our emergency response team and partners to see if we can bring some of those both to provide, you know, sanitation solutions today as well as to test these new ideas in some of the most difficult environments where if they're not going to work, um, that we'll, we'll soon know it. <laughs> and so far, we've talked a lot about um products and vaccines or new toilets. I'm just interested in whether when you're thinking about these problems and, and in fact, when you're prototyping or testing these solutions, you're thinking about the change in behaviour that you need from the end user. So if you think about many of the diseases that we are worried about, they could be solved by people taking up the opportunity to uh, have a vaccine, adhering to drugs, changing their diet, hand washing, uh, not defecating openly. To what extent are you thinking about behavior change in all of these uh, programs? Again, we're, I, I'd like to say we're always thinking about behavior change because technologies on their own rarely just make a difference, right? So even a, a simple, if you will, high-value high technology like immunization uh, it doesn't work if, if the mother refuses to have the child get the vaccine. It doesn't work if the, if the health worker doesn't, you know, think that uh, the child needs it or, or doesn't go out to the household to deliver it um, or isn't at the clinic when the mother comes with her child to be immunized. So the health-seeking behavior, the health delivery behaviors of healthcare providers are actually kind of, you know, part of the package of delivering technological innovation. So we think about behavior change when we're designing and investing in new technologies. That's important that, if you will, user-centered design is important at the earliest stages of technological innovation. Can you just say a bit about how you incorporate user-centered design in that innovation process? Understanding how people experience services and understanding how product innovations could help 
make it easier for people to access or for healthcare providers to deliver uh, services is is a key component. Sometimes we do it by a kind of formal, you know, design process that is used in again in the private sector and in, in the design of many products. Some, sometimes it's just studying the health system and the limitations that of the healthcare providers to understand the demands on their time, et cetera. I mean, one innovation a number of years ago in in Nigeria in the polio campaign was understanding why sometimes the teams didn't reach all of the people on their list. And then we, we actually understood by looking at how they were doing it that we had teams that had too many people going to too many places and splitting it into smaller teams of fewer people who could divide uh, you know the households and reach them in a day, just making sure the workload was doable. So bringing that perspective of the user, whether the user's a uh, a person in the community, a mother trying to decide what's best for her child, or whether it's a healthcare provider deciding how best to do their job, getting that perspective into both the technology development process, but also as we begin to introduce and deploy these technologies is important. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about foundations, and I think particularly uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is that your position to take on uh, things that governments can't do, and in particular kind of take risks that governments may not be able to take. And this is something Bill Gates has argued mm-hmm. very publicly. Um, and I'm wondering if you can explain how the found- why, that, why that is and how you actually take advantage of that. Well, so, you know, usually it's um... – Almost all the work that we do is in partnership. Often we can be the risk takers, the risk capital, if you will. In you know, so if you take the example of the the meningitis vaccine I talked about earlier, a seventy million dollar ten year investment that we didn't know if it was actually paying off until the ninth year when the when the vaccine was uh, proven to be effective, licensed, and approved by the World Health Organization. Um, you know for there were obviously there are there are metrics along the way milestones to to understand whether you're making progress but in the end it would be hard you know for many governments to um, make a a big bet like that on that time frame um, politicians don't, you know are often elected and reelected on shorter time frames and are looking for shorter term gains similarly you know one of the places and it's 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 kind of related to what you were saying is is investing in global public goods, right? So if you think about who who should support innovation, you know, the poorest countries of the world are often struggling with very limited resources to meet immediate needs. And it's hard for them to make a decision to invest in something that's, you know, going to pay off a long time from now and, and you know, is, is more of a public good for, for the world. And that's where I think the richer countries of the world, as well as philanthropy, have a role to play in solving those market failures, taking those risks, and and trying to produce those global public goods that will make the world a better place. So uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is uh, the largest philanthropic foundation in the world with an endowment of uh, north of you know $40 billion, which is I think roughly double the GDP of Uganda. And I think all told now the foundation spends more on global health every year than the World Health Organization and, um, and others. And would love to hear with that type of uh, batting weight, what are the types of checks that you put in process to make sure you're soliciting the right type of feedback? And what are the limitations that you set for yourself to to institutionalize kind of a set of checks there? And just to add to that, I wonder, given your power and weight, does anyone actually um, speak truth to power or bite <laughs> the hand that feeds them? <laughs> so... Um, uh, no one's bitten my hand lately, but I have gotten um, <laughs> quite a bit of good and critical feedback. So I'll, uh, you know, and so one is is it's hard, right? You know, it's uh, and I for most of my career I was uh, a recipient, a grantee of of the Gates Foundation. So for back in 1998 was when I got my first uh, grant that I was managing. So for a good 15 years. I was on the other side of the fence, if you will, as a grantee. And for six and a half years now here at the, at the foundation, we try to welcome critical feedback. 
I know from being on the other side of uh, that partnership how hard it is, how risky it can feel to tell one of your major donors that they're doing something wrong. Um, and so, you know, we try to understand that and that to understand that we're, you know, and to invite people to, to give us that kind of critical feedback. We do some specific things. You know, we do have a mechanism for uh, grantees to, to give us feedback on individual, you know, their experience in uh, working with us on a, with a particular program or program officer on a, on a particular grant. And that's important kind of real-time feedback, but that, that doesn't really get, Grant, to your comment about the broader influence. And so that's one of the things that's important there is where, you know, is that we are often just one of many uh, funders and partners in some of these complex developments. So we, you know, we're a, a significant funder of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. We're a, you know, a significant mm-hmm. funder of the Global uh, Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria as well as the, the new global financing facility for every woman, every child. Um, and in those settings, we're a contributor, but we're not the only contributor, even you know the majority contributor uh, or the largest contributor. And so um, we're part of a broader discussion with other development partners, often with the UN agencies, um, to understand how to drive performance in the system. But your comments are are well taken because it is hard to uh, speak truth to power, if you will. Uh, my best favorite example so far this year is that we have uh, in one in one African country. I won't say which it is, just to not embarrass the minister. Um, we have a, a lot of activity going on, and we actually um, had a high level visit there. And after the visit, the minister wrote a a very nice letter thanking uh, us for our commitment, the announcement of some new uh, grant funding, and then said, and and if I can, let me just tell you how challenging it's been to coordinate with, you know, we appreciate that several of your programs are interested in helping our country, but they kind of show up here uh, in an uncoordinated way. And, you know, on one week we have a visit from this team and the next week from another. And if you were a little bit better coordinated, among yourself and better aligned with our national health sector plan, we think it would actually have a bigger impact and it would certainly be easier on us. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, I had a follow-up Shared meeting Calendar. with that minister. And and I just thank first thing I did is thank him for being so frank. A, he was right. Um, and mm-hmm. B, he really kind of, you know, this is a minister of a very poor country speaking up to the Gates Foundation and saying, look, you're, you're, you know, we think it's wonderful that you're working with us, but you could be more wonderful. And that's the kind of feedback we really need to, to encourage from all of our partners and that, uh, you know, we're not always good at, uh, but I'd like to think we're getting better at. Chris Elias, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, Great thank to you. To you. It's been fun, guys. Thanks for listening. Our team at the IRC is Alex Bandea, Catherine Long, and Ben Moskovitz. And a huge thank you to everybody at Vox Media. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. Golda Arthur is our senior producer. And Nishak Kurwa is the executive producer of audio at Vox Media. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Do get in touch with us and give us any feedback and suggestions on who we should have on the show at displaced at rescue.org. We'd love to hear from you. Literally send us anything. And subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. What are you doing right now? You're rating us, right? That's exactly what you're doing. We put up show notes at www.rescue.org forward slash displaced. Check them out. See you next week and thanks for listening.